Hello, and welcome to Dangerous Exponents, a COVID-19 podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman, and with me for this episode, as always, is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hey, Jeff. This episode is the 12th of Dangerous Exponents, and for this episode, we want to focus on the other vaccines. So for months now, we've been hearing about a few major vaccine candidates rolling out, both in terms of trials being completed and production production capacity being ramped up and regulatory bar barriers being uh, overtaken and so on and so forth. But as the pandemic rolls on and we start thinking in global terms about vaccinating billions of people, the role of the, like I say, other vaccines, we're putting that in quotes, um, has gotten bigger. And specifically, I'm thinking about the Russian Sputnik vaccine and the two leading Chinese vaccines, the Sinovac and Sinopharm, and to a lesser extent, the Covaxin vaccine from India. Um, we're still fig figuring out how big a role they will play, how effective they are, especially in the case of Covaxin, and perhaps most importantly, how the rest of the world is going to react to them. Uh, politically, not in terms of, of health considerations. And before we really jump into this topic, I want to give our usual but necessary caveat that Carl and I hope we're bringing something to the global coronavirus conversation as data journalists and things of that nature with a lot of, a, a lot of time and expertise at looking at uh, quantitative problems and analyzing them. We are not, however, physicians or epidemiologists or the sort of people who actually get on the nightly news talking about this stuff. So take it all with a grain of salt. It's not medical advice. It's not legal advice, but hopefully it's still uh, enjoyable and fruitful to listen to. So Carl, here's what I want to start with. Um, Carl Sagan popularized this phrase that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And that seems to be the way that the world has reacted to the idea that Russia produced what might turn out to be the first effective vaccine. So the Sputnik vaccine in various trials looks like it's around 90% effective. Um, a, a review of that has been published in The Lancet, which is about as as blue chip a journal as you can get. Uh, Russia is selling and shipping doses of the vaccine around the world to countries that are excited to get it, not necessarily individual people that are excited to get it. So, I guess the, the first question then is, is, is this idea that we can trust Russia to have produced an effective vaccine, is that an extraordinary claim? Well, we, we have heard that Russia produced vaccines successfully for other illnesses, other infections uh, in the past decade. And we just didn't hear as much about them because they were ended up not being needed for global outbreaks, thankfully, because there, there weren't ones like COVID. So to my mind, there, there's some reason to have accepted the possibility, but we're also in a very different place than we were when Sputnik started being rolled out. I think you said it may be the first effective vaccine, and it may in fact have been the first vaccine that ended up proving to be effective that was deployed because the sequence of those two things, the proven effectiveness and the deployment, were in the opposite order of what we've come to expect in the U.S. and Europe, and really in most of the world. Um, so back when it was first deployed, there was reason to be skeptical, maybe even scared, uh, not just because of the dangers of a vaccine that hasn't fully been vetted. Uh, at least for effectiveness, but also for the effect that it might have on global acceptance of any vaccines, including Sputnik. Uh, but where we are now with the Lancet study, I think we also have months and months of millions of people having been vaccinated. And while maybe we don't have all the data we would want about how that's gone, we, we don't have evidence that it's been uh, dangerous or that a lot of those people have gotten infected after vaccination. So seems like maybe now uh, the the reasons to accept it are much, much greater than they were when it was first being rolled out. What do you think? Where are we at? Well, so as, a, as an educated person, let's say, with who's been following the news, knows about this Lancet study, 
like you say, is aware that this isn't just some fly-by-night Russian operation. There are people who've been working on vaccines for a long time with with at least some success that they claim. I mean, the, the, the examples you gave, they developed vaccines for MERS and for Ebola, and they weren't really tested in battle, so to speak, because there wasn't really a battle to test them in, but, but it seems like they were probably, probably successful. So it, it, I guess it, it, we need to be clear about what sort of threshold these vaccines need to cross. So in my mind, if someone were to show up at my door and say, here, do you want to take this Russian vaccine? I guess I'd wonder why they showed up on my door. I'd be skeptical about that. But if I had the opportunity to take the Russian vaccine based on what I know, yeah, I'd take it. Uh, and the question then is, should, would that be good enough? And that, that brings us to the different levels of, of regulatory standards. So the, the last year, in some cases, has been devoted to clearing these regulatory hurdles for vaccines like the Moderna vaccine, which we know was developed in a weekend last February, I think. So all the lag time between then and, and late 2020 was just spent proving that it worked and, and running the trials, getting past regulators and so on. Um, the Lancet study might be good enough for me personally and for a lot of other people, but if, if the U.S., for instance, wanted to distribute the Russian vaccine and actually use it, it'd kind of be starting from square one. Or if the, the WHO wanted to sign off on the Russian vaccine, then there's a pretty stringent set of regulatory hurdles for it to cross, more stringent than for a vaccine that has been approved in a place like the U.S. or the U.K. And I guess that's the big question. That's that's the extraordinary evidence part of the extraordinary claims. Like, it, it, are, are we at the point now that if, if you and I can say, you know, this is probably good enough, that this is enough evidence for me, like, should that mean it's, it's, it's time to cut some of these corners and not start from square one when it comes to FDA um, approval and parallel things around the world? Like in, in, in short, like, should the rest of the world be more ready than they are now to, take this Russian vaccine on board and assume that it works as it claimed to? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I would take that same offer, and I think many people would. There, there are probably many people who, who would have taken the vaccine even before the Lancet study, just on the basis of uh, we probably knew more about its safety than about its effectiveness before the study of effectiveness. It's, it's easier to test safety. The... The, the expression about extraordinary evidence to me is very different from the from what you could call extraordinary paperwork. I mean, for the regulatory approval, I, I don't want to just dismiss re re regulation and approval of potentially dangerous uh, biological treatments as paperwork, but at least some of the obstacles or the reasons why it takes as long as it does, even if it's been faster than usual this time around, does have to do with, you know, very specific things that specific regulators are expecting in a specific format. And while, again, I, I generally am okay with there being obstacles of all kinds to, to approving something that uh, somebody with a profit motive is, is trying to, to sell to people to put in their bodies. I think this this experience is also exposing that there is some um, some waste in that process, some duplication, and also some disincentive. So if you're the maker, the promoter of a, of a vaccine, and you could either you know ramp up production for countries that have already embraced it or try to expand the market in countries that might not accept it or not accept it for months and have already approved other vaccines uh, then you know you might you might just not even bother starting the process right now and that could be to the detriment of the people in the countries overseen by those regulatory bodies so you know i think we're building to this question of should there be some kind of more centralized, standardized, streamlined, globalized process for the actual approval, and maybe maybe also for the you know the the way that the data is collected and reported, and, and ways to compare more directly? And and I do want to get into that conversation. I realize we're we're calling this 
internally a show about the other vaccines. In your intro, you, you call them the other vaccines. I, I do want to be clear what we mean as the other other vaccines or, or just the vaccines, the vaccines that may feel like others to people in Russia and China, maybe. Uh, I think we're talking about Moderna, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, and maybe J&J. Is that, is that kind of the ones we're not really going to talk about today, just so people know why we're not talking about them? Yeah, basically. I, I like that you summarized our, our episode today as either about the vaccines, the other vaccines, or the other other vaccines. So take your pick, listeners, whichever one you like. Yeah, I mean, I, I was framing that in terms of the fact that we, we have talked vaccines before. We are U.S.-centric, even though one, only one of us is in the U.S. I mean, the, the U.S. conversation until more recently had been Pfizer and Moderna, basically. Uh, AstraZeneca is is becoming more prevalent in, in Europe. Are we still waiting for approval in the U.S. for AstraZeneca? I think we are. And then, and then J&J is close as well. But... I think, like with a, with a, a little bit of a caveat about AstraZeneca, because of some some issues in the way they've they, they've run their trials and they've, re, they've reported their trials. I think that most people in the West view those vaccines as I don't want to say interchangeable, but let's say interchangeable. They're all developed by by Western firms uh, in accordance with Western regulatory standards. Uh, maybe there are people out there who are queasy about mRNA. I, I don't know. I haven't heard that, but it seems like there might be some fear of new things. But in, in general, like let, let's call them the four big Western vaccines. Like they're often treated as a unit. And, and these other vaccines, the way I framed this episode, basically Russian, Chinese, and to some extent, the, the Indian Covaxin vaccine, are ones that could be rolled out faster to places that won't be able to get the Western vaccines as quickly. And because they were developed outside of the Western regulatory process, there's different questions about them, at least in the West and probably in some places that have traditionally followed the West for medical advice. So since I've said Russia and China probably five times already in, in, in this episode. Let's let's broaden our focus from our initial discussion about the the Russian vaccine. The, the Chinese vaccines were also available quite early. Uh, there there's two different ones. They've been they've already begun being distributed not just in China but there's a, a big push in Indonesia using them as well. Uh, trials run in various places around the world, Asia and South America. So. Do you think of the Chinese vaccine any different? I mean, can we just take what we've already said about Russia and apply it to the Chinese vaccines? Or is is there a way we want to separate these two? My understanding of the Chinese vaccines, and, and it, it's a little harder to talk about just because there are two we're talking about. There are others. Uh, there are differences between the two. But my understanding is that there is less certain data about the effectiveness of the Chinese vaccines as compared to this Lancet study, that the Lancet study really put Sputnik ahead of them. Um, I mean, this is through the lens of how this has been reported in the Western media, and maybe right now there's a more anti-China bias than an anti-Russia bias, but uh, that, that's my impression. How, how about yours? Yeah, I mean... It, it, and we should say we, we've referred to the Lancet study several times as I, I said it was a blue chip journal, which it is, and it's sort of closing the debate. It doesn't entirely close the debate. Some people have expressed skepticism about, about some of the data, um, but it, it does seem pretty solid. We don't have exactly the same thing. And there are some questions about some of the trials that have been run with Sinopharm and Sinovac. So there was one big study run in, in Brazil that... I think it, it it showed that the vaccine was 50% effective, which is way lower than the other trials had shown. But it, it might have had something to do with um, with the people who were selected for the study. It doesn't even seem entirely clear when when you dig into it. But yeah, the, the numbers are all over the board. And that's not something you want to see. I mean, it's one thing if you have two studies of a vaccine, one of which says 91%, one of which says 86 Like You'd happily take either one of those, those numbers. You can, you can accept the fact that differences in environment and, and other factors would account for it. But when you get 50%, 66%, 82%, 93%, all from the, the same vaccine, you, you got to start to wonder. So 
so yeah, that that's one big question about the Chinese vaccine, but it doesn't really seem to be slowing the rest of the world down. At, at, at the governmental level anyway, it seems like countries are lining up at least to get their hands on this vaccine and run more trials, and in many cases, get their hands on the vaccine and start jabbing people with them. Um, the question then is how people on the street will react. And we've all, we both already said, you know, given the opportunity, we'd take the Sputnik vaccine. I'm not sure I'd be quite as enthusiastic about the, the Chinese vaccines. But again, if the opportunity was there, I think I probably would. Uh, I don't have any real strong reason not to. But every news story you read about any of these vaccines, it, it feels like that there's an obligatory person on the street who says, hmm... I don't know if I trust this thing. I don't think I'll take it until I find out more, or I don't think I'd take something made by the Russians or whatever. I mean, if you've read one news story about the pandemic, you've probably read that person on the street quote. So do you think, Carl, that that's that's going to be a big issue with the Chinese and Russian vaccines rolling around around the world, that they won't be effective simply because of uptake, independent of any... You know, biological reasons they would or wouldn't be effective. I mean, I think especially when we were in the phase of people are getting vaccinated by with these vaccines without knowing how effective they are, uh, that that was a pretty big risk. And, and the whole political element, and uh, there are probably some places in the world that trust Russia and or China a lot more than the U.S. and U.S. or U.K. developed vaccines, but there there are places where the opposite is the case, and and there's you know awareness of of the motive, the political and kind of economic might motives of countries to to spread their their vaccines around the world, and and that could play out in people's reaction. Uh, I, I'm also just concerned about the the way that we find out that there are people, even a 95% effective or anything short of a 100% effective vaccine is going to have some cases where people get sick uh, after getting the vaccine. Now, the numbers have been really encouraging in the trials of the the vaccines we're not really talking about in terms of hospitalization and death. There have basically been none in the trials. But if if there are vaccines that are less effective, uh, there's a greater chance that you will know someone or know someone or know someone or just hear hear the rumors of someone who has been vaccinated and nonetheless died of COVID. And it doesn't take very many of these stories. It could be a tiny percentage to have a really big impact on people's uptake. I, I also think when this is all done, someone ought to do a, a postmortem on why did we start off with such low vaccine uh acceptance, belief, desire, uh, you know, even in the countries that were waiting to get the kind of uh, standard that the FDA or WHO, or not the WHO, the EU is is holding vaccines to. Like, we, we, we kind of started with a lot of skepticism everywhere. And I, I think we all know about some of the reasons why there's been vaccine skepticism, but I'm still alarmed by how high it was in the case of, of something that uh, there was should have been so much desire to eradicate, uh, not just protect yourself from, but to eradicate from one society for social and economic reasons. So, you know, I think it, it is a risk, but we're, we're talking about if there is a risk from the Chinese and Russian vaccines, it's being posed against a backdrop where there's already a, a lot of skepticism. It wouldn't be like going from 100 to 70. It might be going from 60% of people willing to take it to to 50 or to 40 and and that's really troubling yeah and let's let's dig into that i mean we we could probably do a whole episode on vaccine skepticism maybe we should but let's i guess we're, we're previewing it now if that's what we're doing we've seen it's been a, a staple of survey questions for the entirety of the pandemic now that we've seen numbers about what percent of Americans, what percent of Americans in certain groups would be ready to take the vaccine. Those numbers are lower than you'd want them to be often maybe 70%. I don't know. So I've seen numbers that are lower than that. France is sort of the bastion of anti-vax sentiment in Western Europe. And 
something like 50% of people uh, are hesitant to take the vaccine there. I've seen even higher numbers of people in Russia. So even though there might be reasons for those of us in the West to be more accepting of the Russian vaccine, the, the Russian people are not there either. Um, even Russian healthcare workers are not universally on board with this thing or even close. So so yeah, there's a, there's a huge amount of vaccine skepticism. You give one reason, Carl, that it, it, as... As more people take the vaccine, it's more likely that someone will know or know someone who knows someone who has side effects and the vaccine doesn't work. But that hasn't happened yet. So all this skepticism exists before the vaccine rollout. I mean, it, it exists partly in reaction to vaccines that have very, very low side effect percentages, like the, the measles vaccines. Um, so it, it, I can't help but think this is a, a bit of a failing of some combination of public health messaging and journalism, because there are instances where side effects are bad, where vaccines don't work, in where medical procedures of any kind go wrong. It happens. There's an error rate. There's no getting around that. In our current climate of trying to solve the problems of the pandemic as quickly as possible, those mistakes are probably going to happen even more. But the numbers aren't that high at this point. I mean, most of us don't know someone who's had a side, a bad side effect or has gotten COVID despite getting vaccinated. Most of us don't even know someone who knows someone. But if there's you know, one person in a trial who has an adverse medical effect, then that is global news. That one person is global news. And that feeds vaccine skepticism around the world. And part of that is just people not being very smart about statistical thinking. I mean, you and I can hear about that one person and think, yeah, I mean, one person is going to have an adverse medical effect anyway. It's probably unrelated, no problem, nothing to see here, moving on. But as soon as that becomes, you know, a page one story in the Washington Post, it becomes a tidbit on the nightly news, anyone who's a little bit skeptical has something to grab onto. And then it becomes a bigger story. And then it becomes a bigger story. I mean, given that anytime one bad thing in the world happens in this that fits with the news cycle. It gets blown up into something that anyone can grab onto as a reason to be hesitant about about the vaccine. Like, is there any way to break that cycle? I mean, it seems like that. I mean, Carl, you can tell me whether you disagree that this is what's, this is the cycle that's happening. Maybe, maybe there's more to it than this. Maybe I'm caricaturing the problem in an unhelpful way, but I mean, is, is there any way to break that cycle and, encourage people to think more responsibly about the risks? <laughs> uh, and I expect I, answers to all seven of those sub-questions. <laughs> right. And and some that weren't questions, they still have answers to. Like, to start with, I, I, I do not want to be someone who just blames social media for, for all of these ills because they existed before. But my guess is the the story about the one adverse event, and let's call it an adverse event, not, not an adverse effect, because the premise I think we both have is that we're, you're going to get some completely unrelated events that would have happened anyway, just by chance soon after vaccination. Uh, and and that, that that's what's really dangerous is, is to, you know, to, for those single reports to be uh, reported as if it's a sign that the vaccine is, is unsafe. I... I think that the post might bury that story. It might never run in print. It might it might just be something someone threw together, threw together quickly to put on the website. But that stories like that will tend to spread because of you know fear and anxiety and sensationalism and get more attention, regardless because of all the ways things are amplified outside of of the the news media's choices about how to amplify it. So I, I think some of these things that have always been true have, have gotten worse in terms of what we hear about. I. I also think there's a really powerful movement of COVID optimism that's that's sprung up on social media and sometimes gotten entangled with COVID denialism. But you know, I've definitely seen a lot of retweets for for the tweets pointing out how good the numbers have been overall for the trials in terms of no hospitalizations and no deaths. That's been pretty widely distributed. And and maybe I'm in my own echo chamber, but the numbers were high in any case. The this question of, you know, what can we do? I think we, we do have to first really diagnose the problem, trace it. You know, how big was vaccine skepticism back before 
the sort of uh, the myth of the link of autism to vaccines and, and the other kind of anti-vaxxer uh, thread started in the last couple of decades. You know, when we think of past vaccination campaigns, w- was everyone on board? A lot of the mass vaccination campaigns of the past seem like they were um, either among children who are in in some in some respects kind of don't don't get the choice, and their parents don't fully get the choice in terms of what their children can and can't do without having been vaccinated. Um, so in terms of a mass rapid vaccination campaign among adults, what were the, the most successful at getting buy-in without any sort of coercion? Um, it does seem psychologically like there are a lot of just built-in hurdles here. So first of all, a lot of people have needle phobia and whether it's it's a fully diagnosed condition or just a mild one that we probably all have of being stuck with a sharp needle that hurts. Um, that's that's a factor to overcome. I, I think the the sort of preventing a thing that hasn't happened yet is is much harder to motivate people to do. I, I imagine the uptake on a treatment to cure COVID if you if you had it and you could cure it for life and, and not be a long hauler and and immediately be cured of whatever symptoms you have now, that would have a lot less skepticism because you were getting rid of this this thing you had instead of preventing a thing you might never get. Um, so I think there's there's a lot of work to do on sort of untangling what are the roots of this, what what are what are the causes, but it doesn't really surprise me that even taking out the political elements we've talked about which are important, the elements of this has come out really fast which makes me scared the profit motive uh, of the companies involved um even if you take all of those things out potentially the xenophobia that we talked about uh in terms of the the source country of of these vaccines there are reasons that it would be kind of a harder sell to begin with so it seems like there's there's a lot of opportunity and a lot of work to do so i i wonder whether some of these problems can be kind of merged with other problems in a productive way. So in many countries, let's just use as a ballpark number that 50% of the population are answering survey questions that they don't want to take this vaccine. So there's a lot of people who don't want to take the vaccine, whether it comes from Pfizer or whether it comes from Sinopharm. Uh, the numbers might be different, but they're still they're still pretty low. And at the same time, we don't yet have enough vaccines. Uh, there are very few countries that have the supply on hand that they want. Many countries don't even have like short-term hopes of getting the supply that they want. So like, is, is there any reason not to just kind of table this issue for the time being and say, we have this much vaccine. We know there's this many people who want it. Let's give it to the people who want it. Let those people set an example for the rest of society. Let the rest of society see that the pandemic is easing up a little bit because we are getting that much closer to herd immunity and solve these other problems when we get there. I mean, when we actually have the vaccines to give to all the people who don't want it, then we'll figure out how to get the shots in the arms. But in the meantime, I mean, it seems like it's kind of a problem that solves itself, or is that too simplistic a way of thinking about it? I mean, I hope that's right. The The other way to look at it is you you get to the stage where enough people have gotten it so things look better, but nowhere near solved. And then everybody else who didn't want it is like, great, now I really don't need it. It's not really as much of a problem as it was. And everybody goes and does risky things and the the next wave is, is just as bad. I mean, it's, that, it's a little simplistic and probably a lot of other things happen along the way, but uh, I'm not I'm not totally confident that it, um, that we'll get to the point where we get enough people to have taken it, especially when, I mean, we haven't even started talking about the variants and uh, I'll just in, introduce the topic, but the, the general point that all the numbers we're talking about so far have to do with the um, with testing during a period when primarily the original uh, strain of COVID or something close enough to it was the one that was prevalent and was likely to infect people in the vaccine trials. 
and later studies or studies in places where other strains have been more prevalent have have shown more discouraging numbers and we know new variants could be coming so there there are reasons that we're going to have to that I think we're going to have to address this at the same time Fortunately, we have specialists in different areas on the problem, so we don't necessarily need the people who are focused on getting the current supply out there to the right people fast to be the same ones who are dealing with the more systemic problem of why are there so many people out there, including people in the groups who already have access to it, who are, uh, who are skeptical or hesitant to, to take it. So on the on the flip side, like the my my last simplistic proposal was to put it, one way of thinking about it was sort of spreading out the problem, and I think some of the things you say are are accurate. That if if you spread out with the problem and allow people to see it be partially solved, then they have even less reason to want to take the vaccine, and that's a problem. So that's that's definitely a, a fair point and could create pro- all sorts of other issues down the line. So what about the, the, the opposite sort of solution, which is to try to accelerate the solution as much as possible? And I'm, I'm thinking in terms of what we saw in Israel, where it, I mean, Israel was very savvy early on about getting their hands on uh, on on a lot of vaccine relative to the size of the population. So they turned it into this very fast paced, um, very scaled up operation where they were vaccinating more than 1% of the population every day. And it takes on a sort of country at war sort of mentality. And I've heard these kind of metaphors since the beginning of the pandemic that you know, we need a coronavirus Manhattan project, or this is the biggest challenge that's faced our country since, you know, fill in the blank, but World War II or, or whatever. And you don't get the sense that that's really what people in government think. Uh, and you made a really good point in our last episode, Carl, that one of the most effective forms of public health messaging is making it clear that you know what you're doing. That's not the way you said it, but I mean, if you want people to wear masks or to, to take public health advice in general, it, you need to build that trust in the first place. So if if you are a country like New Zealand that obviously has its stuff together, then it's easier to convince the people who live there that they should be wearing masks just because the government says so. It, it's a lot harder to convince a lot of people in the U.S. that that sort of advice should be followed because the U.S. government has in some ways been a shambles handling these problems. So if if the government were able to convey more of a of a Manhattan project sense, more of a sense of of a short term deadline, would that be a way to bring more people on board to get more more community spirit going where it's not so much about get the coronavirus vaccine because it will make your life better. It's get the coronavirus vaccine because your country needs you. I mean, is that a, a useful way to think about a solution? Whew. I hope so. I think it depends a lot on the country and not just based on the, the current state of the government and its competence and, and people's confidence in it, but more just the, the, the prevalence and effectiveness of that attitude in that country more generally. Uh, I, I right now have a hard time seeing that be really effective in the U.S., um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of the last time the country really tried that. I mean, I guess there was somewhat brief national unity around 9-11, maybe around Katrina. Um, I don't know. I might be missing something. Um, you know, I think you, you brought up Israel, and I think Israel is a is a small country that you might expect to already have pretty strong spirit in that sense because of the the nature of, of it where, you know, there's um, Jews around the world have privilege in terms of citizenship. It's a mostly Jewish country. Uh, there's national um, military service with some exemptions. So, so it, and, you know, it has taken this seemingly somewhat military approach to vaccination, although it's also had a lot to do with, um, with soft messaging and, and, you know, appeals to different communities and so on. But even in Israel, we're seeing the ultra-Orthodox community really 
recoil against government measures, not just vaccination, but the, the measures taken right now to, to stem a really big wave of COVID. And, I, you know, I also think as much as we're talking about this from maybe like a nationalistic perspective, do it for your country and for the other people in your country. I think it, it helps to have other countries as models. And we don't yet have a model of Israel as a place where vaccination has worked in the sense of of the way you described it before, enough people getting vaccinated fast enough to uh, to really make the situation with the pandemic much better. Uh, maybe the situation would be much worse, but we don't have that would be to compare it to. We just have Israel near the top of the dubious rankings of, of case counts per capita. So um, I, I think you're onto something. It's something worth trying. It probably works better in, in some places than others. Uh, maybe it works better by talking about, like, for instance, you know, African-Americans in the U.S. have been particularly hard hit by COVID. So maybe as opposed to making an appeal for the country as a whole, saying, you know, for the sake of black Americans, uh, it's important that you get vaccinated to protect your community. Uh, maybe in, in Israel, it's among certain religious communities. But, you know, finding a greater good to appeal to that would be effective is is a great idea. I'm, I'm just... Um, I guess I'm, <laughs> I've become pretty cynical about it in practice, given the extent of selfishness we've seen during the pandemic. Well, if you want to be, I understand the reason for cynicism. If you want to be cynical about it, that, that still works with, with your last idea, which I think is a good one, that I, I agree that if, if, if you appeal to a lot of Americans with do this for the sake of America, at the very least, you're going to get a raised eyebrow. I mean, you'll get a, some positive responses, but like I say, raised eyebrows. On the other hand, you give a great example that as long as you're being reasonably transparent and you have a decent track record of, of honesty and good faith to say you should get vaccinated for the sake of black America, like that's that's potentially a powerful message. And it's not just that message, of course. I mean, um, I mean, there, there's probably Native American communities that have been particularly hard hit. It could be for the sake of that community, even if it's widespread and, and quite large. Uh, you can imagine multiplying that 100 times over. And like you said, to, a, a, to some extent, Israel approached the problem that way. Like there, there's there's plenty of uh, not polarization, but but there's plenty of separation within Israeli society. Who's thinking in terms of the, the number of Russian speakers who aren't fully integrated, and so on. And and the government was cognizant of that from day one. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the, there probably is a way to appeal to the greater good, even if it's not the the widest possible great good, and and that could be effective. So there's one more big topic that I want to talk about today. Uh, this is my convenient way of getting getting the last word, word Carl. So you're just going to have to um, follow me along on this awkward segue to the Indian vaccine and development, Covaxin. And we've talked on some some past episodes about ways in which trials could have been accelerated, um, maybe accepting people who were volunteers in riskier trials or giving people the opportunity to take vaccines before they had cleared all the regulatory hurdles, basically ways of, of, of getting potentially effective shots in arms before all the T's had been crossed and the I's had been dotted and so on. And one interesting development before I talk about India is in Russia, a lot of people got together who were involved in, in one of the trials for the Sputnik vaccine and exchanged information with each other in a telegram group. So you had this sort of citizen data collection, data science project going on that seems to be supporting the official line as far as the safety and efficacy of the vaccine. And that seems great. I mean, I, I can't imagine anyone saying, oh, bad telegram users. That seems like a really productive thing. Uh, less uh, less easy to approve of, let's say, is what India is doing with the Covaxin vaccine. So India has some vaccine from other sources. They're also developing this one within India. And here's what we know about Covaxin. It has finished some early stage trials. It hasn't provide, provided data about whether it works. And at vaccine centers, 
people are getting either the established vaccine, I'm sorry, I forget which one it is, or Covaxin, and they're not given a choice about which one it works. And one one regulator said, I shouldn't be laughing about this, but we'll get to the joke in a second. Um, a regulator says that the, the Covaxin vaccine is being used, quote, in clinical trial mode. And this is from a Washington Post article, a phrase that left experts baffled. So nobody really knows what clinical trial mode is, but India is running some kind of clinical trial on its population because it doesn't have enough established proven vaccine for everyone. So, Carl, I mean, it seems like you can make some some positive arguments about some aspects of this, that they're, they're speeding up the process, they're getting a lot of data. It seems like they're doing it in a reasonably well-organized way to collect and make use of this data. But the negatives seem pretty clear, too. I mean, what's what's your reaction to hearing about Covaxin being pressed into service so early in its development process? I think that was a Wall Street Journal article. Uh, I, I Or maybe maybe that, that line was in more than one article. But I, I that caught my eye, too. And, I mean, it, experts said they didn't know what it meant. But I think you just described what it meant, which is it's it's running a massive vaccine trial on a group of people who aren't totally aware, haven't been, haven't really consented to what's going on. Um, I mean, the, my main thought is just, we, the world has failed here. We failed people, including, uh, you know, the billion plus people in India, maybe as much as anyone, and may, maybe they can stand in for billions of others around the world. You know, we, I think we talked last week about the way that uh, in general, the, the COVID response has, has kind of failed many of the poorest countries, as is the case with a lot of global health and global initiatives. But, you know, for some things like for, for a pandemic, for COVID, it's it's been said in the U.S. that trying to fight it at the city level or the state level is is futile because it, it knows no borders. And that same statement clearly extends to countries. And yet with this nationalized um, competition approach to vaccines and vaccine regulation, we've inevitably left out so many people. And I, it's totally understandable that India would be desperate and Indians would be desperate to find some way to, to prevent you know, further spread. Some parts of the country, some parts of the population at some points in the past year have been really hard hit in India. And there's so many other um, challenges facing facing the country and facing people there. Uh, you know, I in a vacuum, I'm absolutely against it. I wish that instead India had hundreds of millions of Moderna and Pfizer on the way. Uh, that's not how we set up the system we, we set it up so some countries can can buy up the the first shipments and 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 get them when when other countries just have no shot and you know maybe india should instead just be rolling out sputnik and maybe there's a way to do that but yeah, it's it's a system failure here not an india failure is my point well yeah and i, I don't mean to suggest it is a failure, um, and since for whatever the reason, the fact that they are a few steps behind us suggests that this is something that could have been done in the West earlier as well. You know, and and I'm not suggesting that the U.S. would have been better off running a sort of improvised trial with the first vaccine that was approved and some other vaccine that wasn't yet approved, uh, but it's something that could have been done with volunteers. And I, I, I don't, I don't like phrasing this as saying the world has failed the way that you say it because I, I don't like saying the world in the same reason. I don't like saying we because the, the, there are individuals responsible. There are institutions that have been developed in ways that have responsibility for the problems. And I'm, I'm not trying to pass it off from myself or anyone I'm associated with. I just think it's better if we're we're clear about who we're talking about. Um, but whether we're talking about someone failing India or failing all populations around the world, I feel like there's a lot of risks that could have been taken earlier with informed consent, with volunteers, 
that would have sped along this process or money that could have been spent in ways that would have been more directly concerned at getting more vaccines available to more Indians earlier uh, than what will end up happening. Uh, so, so yeah, I didn't, I, I hope I didn't end up phrasing the question too negatively because I think public health experts are too quick to look at something like this and say, this is horrible. You should never do this. It should be stopped when, okay, you can see the argument, but at the same time, what are the alternatives? And the alternatives in India and in a lot of places, as you point out, Carl, the, the alternatives are not great. And maybe there are, are no alternatives that are better. I mean, if it turns out that Covaxin is effective, even at a, a moderate level, like maybe Sinovac is, um, a lot of people will have gotten effective shots earlier on. And if it has problems, then we'll find out that much faster. Hopefully it doesn't. And hopefully if it does have problems, the, the, the side effects won't be serious, but we'll, we'll find out quickly and maybe a lesser loss to life than we would have otherwise seen if the pandemic was just left to run its course with a lower number of vaccinated people in the population for another month or two or more. So, we're running up against our, our self-imposed time limits for this episode, but we've touched on a lot of stuff. We haven't really settled a lot of issues in this wide-ranging discussion of Indian, Chinese, and Russian vaccines. So, Carl, I'll, I'll leave it up to you to direct the final part of our conversation. Any any final thoughts or, or remaining issues that you want to raise? Yeah, I'll try to do them rapid-fire. The I take your point on India, and maybe there, there's something useful in the approach. I think the way I read it, it, it's not the things we would hope, like totally informed consent and a, a well-run trial. And oh, it's it's definitely not informed consent. No, I mean that that part is ethically. It's not even ethically murky. It's 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 eth ethically wrong. Um, but maybe maybe the data collection aspects, for example, maybe maybe that's better and more useful. Yeah, I mean, I was just going to bring it back to we we've talked a lot about about messaging and and public attitudes and the you know some that that cannot help. I mean, <laughs> people in India know will know now what's going on. Uh, you know, the, the, these stories won't just be in the Wall Street Journal and. W it, it sort of it cuts to the heart of why there could be vaccine skepticism is is that approach. Um, I I also while we're talking about messaging, you know I think that we were talking about like you know messages that might be effective and like do this for Black Americans and th there were some pretty interesting public health TV ads, especially early on. I remember some of the U.S. state. De health departments working with with good ad agencies from their states uh, showing you know the the reason why distancing was important for instance and you could certainly imagine ads like do it for all the grandparents out there do it do it to protect you know the, there there are ways to maybe get that message across beyond appealing to the national good and that leads me to the last point i i had saved up, which was just to maybe be more optimistic than what, how I ended what I said about people being pretty selfish during the pandemic, that in the very early days of the pandemic in the U.S., according to various data and probably around the world, but I just haven't seen the same kind of data, people did spontaneously help arrest that first wave in so many places around the world, even before there are any government rules and, and advisories by dramatically reducing exposure and reducing R. And I think we talked about in our episode around R and around contagion, but like we have to give ourselves and each other credit that without there being a Manhattan Project, without there being some kind of national call of duty, people did, for the most part, do their duty in, the, in March uh, of 2020, and that that gives reason for hope that, that we will eventually with vaccines. And that's a good point. We talked in our last episode, I think, either the last one or the one before that, we touched on pandemic preparedness. And I made the the slightly counterintuitive argument that one aspect of pandemic preparedness is having the, the sort of health research facilities available. So, you know, kudos to the UK for having the Oxford Institute. I mean, that is one aspect of, of pandemic preparedness to, to be ready to start developing the vaccines. But 
there's another way of thinking about that, that a lot of parts of Africa have been dealing with different types of pandemics and different scales, different sorts of diseases and so on, but they've been dealing with them more recently, maybe more frequently than some of us in the West have. So in terms of pandemic preparedness as an attitude, uh, some of the parts of the world that will be last to, the, to get the vaccine, they have a different sort of preparedness. Uh, and and that, that sounds like it could be interpreted as kind of a casual racism. That's not the way I intend it at all. Just that the, the places that have figured out how to fend for themselves when there is a dangerous disease on the loose, like maybe it's just at the village level that they're thinking, you know, we can close this off. Um, or it's just more natural to say there's something bad out there in the air or whatever. We therefore need to socially distance more. It's just an easier step to take if you've dealt with a similar problem in, in the recent past. Um, and, and that's one type of pandemic preparedness that I don't really see anybody giving out credit for, even though it, it could be a factor in, in some of the places in Africa, for instance, that haven't been hit as hard as some other indicators would predict that they would. Um, so it's one more thing to think about uh, on our our long, long list of, of aspects of the pandemic and second order and third order effects to discuss. So since we have at least hinted at several future episodes, we should probably leave it there for today. Um, thank you, Carl, for joining me today for this episode of Dangerous Exponents. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, everyone, for listening. As always, you can check out all of our past episodes, the back catalog of 11 more at this point, at dangerousexponents.com. Uh, you can contact us. I'm at Tennis Abstract on Twitter. Carl is at Carl Bialik on, on Twitter. He's even made an appearance there in the recent past. So do let us know what you think, any suggestions or comments or feedback, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, thanks in advance for any of that that you have to offer. And as always, Thank you for listening.